Morning, brothers and sisters. So good to be with you this morning. Many of you I haven't seen since last year, uh, but I'm excited to open God's Word uh, together with you. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find our passage on page 974. Page 974. Uh, It's been a while since we have been in the book of Galatians. We took a little over a month's break uh, through December from it. Uh, So just allow me a few moments to remind you what has happened in the book of Galatians up to this point in chapter 4. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, These are Christians that Paul himself uh, evangelized and led to the Lord, uh, churches he would have planted along one of his missionary journeys. And based on the contents of the letter and the geographic location, we know that these Christians uh, were Gentiles before coming to faith in Christ. Uh, At some point after Paul had left them, Jews came to them teaching that circumcision was required, uh, was necessary as part of their new faith in Jesus, therefore implying that adherence to the Mosaic law was required for salvation. And it appears that the Christians in Galatia uh, were maybe buying it or tempted to buy that teaching. Uh, They are being persuaded by these Judaizers, as Paul referred to them. He calls them false brothers even at one point. And so Paul writes this letter urgently warning them uh, that to add anything to a gospel of grace is to depart from the gospel altogether, to follow a new gospel, not that there is another one, uh, Paul says. Uh, meaning to believe that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ plus adherence to the law, for example, is a different message altogether. It takes away from the message of grace. So some of the strongest statements about uh, the exclusivity of Christianity can be found in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul says that if even he or an angel from heaven comes preaching a contrary news to the one he has preached, uh, to let them be accursed. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, To add to anything is to rob God of His glory in saving us by grace. It's to consider Christ's death of no value. Because to consider Christ as anything other than sufficient and full sacrifice to God on behalf of sinners. Well, you might as well count it as meaningless altogether. What is the point of Christ's death if it only accomplished part of our salvation. Well, all of this is absolutely crucial for us today because just about every religion in the world or worldview has some kind of works-based requirements built into its gospel. Uh, And I say uh, gospel like Paul, not that there is another. There's only one gospel message, but in uh, their worldview or good news It follows that works-based salvation views never have a robust doctrine of assurance like Christianity does. That's because what assurance is there to be had if at the end of the day our salvation comes down to how good we are, how many good deeds we do. If we're honest with ourselves, we know there's evil in our hearts. We're born into sin because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We don't have a way of stopping it. It's our default settings, if you will, that can't be 
changed by ourselves. The gospel of Jesus is different. The gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians, that they believed in when he was with them, is a gospel of grace. It is the good news that even though we could never work our way into heaven, there is one who never sinned, who paid the price that we owed. Christ in love laid his life down so that we could have everlasting life and not perish. That's what the Galatians came to believe prior to these Jews coming along. They're saved by grace, apart from the law. But Paul finds their understanding of the gospel threatened as Jews require them to be circumcised, requiring them to observe the law of the Torah. So our text this morning is one of Paul's most honest, most direct and desperate appeals to Christians in Galatia. Uh, Like a loving parent pleading with their child to do what is right. With that in mind, let's read our passage together now. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain over you. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You can feel the personal emotion that Paul has put into this letter. It feels like we're opening the mail of the Galatians uh, here. And we're walking into a very personal conversation between Paul and his beloved disciples. Uh, Considering Paul's concern for the lasting fruit of the Galatians, I think there's much that we can draw from this text and apply to our own lives about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Uh, So this morning, uh, well, first let me just state what I think the main idea is for us. Uh, The main idea, I think, in this passage uh, is that we should diligently guard the gospel so that we remain free from the slavery of a works-based salvation. I'll repeat that again. We should diligently guard the gospel so that we remain free from the slavery of a works-based gospel or works-based salvation, rather. Uh, That's, I think, the kind of the overall heading that's happening here. But inside this text, uh, I think that there are at least seven characteristics of a Christian 
that we can learn from and apply to our lives. Uh, so um, that's going to be my, my outline. Uh, I'll state them and restate them as they go through. The first two are longer than the rest. Uh, so as we go through, uh, fear not there. Uh, but I hope that this will be a kind of spiritual analysis for you as we go through each one of these points. Perhaps they'll even be helpful, one or some of them, as you think about uh, the new year. Now, if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a, a disciple of Jesus, my hope is that you'll walk away with a better understanding about what it means to be a follower of Jesus uh, and a better understanding of Christianity as a whole. Uh, so first, uh, the first characteristic of, uh, of disciples of Jesus is that Christians are free from the burden of works-based righteousness. Uh, they're free from the burden of works-based righteousness. Uh, look with me again at verses 8 and 9. It says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Uh, this is quite a statement. Paul's effectively saying that uh, the decision to accept the false gospel uh, of the Judaizers will put them right back where they came from slavery to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, this is the second time that Paul has used that language of elementary principles uh, in the world, first time being in chapter 4, verse 3. And, and whatever he means specifically, it at least clearly refers to life before Christ or life apart from Christ. It sounds like he would be referring to pagan idolatry or something like that, especially since he says that those things in their nature are not God's. But Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that they are tempted to follow the Jewish law. He equates being under the elementary principles with following Jewish law. That's what he means when he says you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's speaking about uh, the Jewish calendar, things like honoring the day of the Sabbath, celebrating uh, the Feast of Weeks or various other festivals, the Day of Atonement or the Year of Jubilee. According to Paul, following the law after coming to faith in Christ is not a step forward, but a step backwards. It is to revert to the same state that you were in before you were saved by grace. Sin will still rule over you. You'll still be working to please that which is by nature not God. If it is the law, you'll tirelessly work to follow the law and you'll always come up short because the law was not given to absolve sin, but to uncover it, to reveal it. The law is given to expose our need for a Savior. But the same is true for anything else. So just consider for a moment uh, the kind of pagan religions we think of uh, when idolatry is mentioned. You have an idol made by human hands that... Sacrifices are given to, and perhaps uh, these idols are thought to control a, a, a realm like the weather, like the agriculture, like war or fertility or something like that. But the hope is the same. If you do enough good, you'll gain the favor of the God, and then that God will act in your favor. Well, that's, that's the truth of every worldview, isn't it? There's the hope of a desired life. The one who ascribes to that particular view is left to try as hard as they can, hoping things will work out well for them in the end. It comes down to, right, 
our own actions and our own works. Well, this is the reason Paul describes it as slavery, because we can't free ourselves. And because we treat things that are not God, whether it be the law or our, the idols of our own hearts, as if they are God. 1 Timothy 2.5 states that there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So to believe in Christ is to be freed from the burden of works-based righteousness because we can never be righteous ourselves. We need the righteousness of another. And that other is Jesus himself who willingly went to the cross so that his righteousness could be credited to us as he bore the wrath of our sin upon himself. This reality changes everything. It's no wonder Paul calls it freedom. We're not slaves to our works nor slaves to sin, but we have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. This is the reason Christianity offers a robust doctrine of assurance, because it's not up to our own efforts, but the efforts of Christ who rose from the grave three days later, confirming his victory over death and sin. Paul's concern that the Galatians might turn their back on the freedom held out to them in Christ and go back into a slavery that's not so different from where they came from. Uh, so the first characteristic uh, is that Christians are freed from a works-based righteousness system. Uh, point two is Christians are known by God. Christians are known by God. Uh, you might have noticed the way that Paul uh, states and then rephrases what he says in verse 9. First he says, you have come to know God. And then he says, uh, rather, be known by God. Why did he feel the need to change the order there? Well, certainly they have come to know God, and that should be enough to make the appeal, you would think. Uh, but there is a different emphasis in Paul's adjustment. It's not just that the Galatian Christians have come to know and experience God, but their salvation in the first place is due to God coming to them. It's true for anyone whose ears are opened when they hear the message of the gospel. It was God who sent the messenger who preached that good news. It was God who sent his son so that the messenger had good news to preach about. It was because of God's love and his choosing of you that he did that in the first place, sending his son. Notice how much initiative is taken by God to save unworthy sinners uh, this is why it's called amazing grace, friends. It makes sense that we would grow fatigued at our own efforts. It'd be easy for us to look at our own devotion to God and say, you know what? We've not really been very good at this. I might as well just try something else. Perhaps I'd be a, a, a good Hindu or a good Buddhist. But to consider the lengths to which God has known us and sought us out because of his love for us, Brothers and sisters, that should light a fire within us to never want to leave him. The one who loved us despite all our flaws, yet still he laid down his life for us. To be known by God uh, does not simply mean that we are, uh, or, or that God rather is aware of our existence. Uh, to be known by God, that's actually a theological term, denoting his salvific choosing of us. It's a description of his electing love, 
He knows and chooses us, just like he knew and chose Abraham to make a great nation out of. Or just like he knew and chose Israel out of all of the other nations in the earth to accomplish his purposes, to make himself known. So for the Galatians and for all Christians, God has not just made himself known to us, revealing himself to us, but he knows us and chose us to be redeemed. He chose to make our hearts his home for his spirit. He knows everything about us inside and out, just like you know what's inside of your own house. Christians don't just know God. They are known by God. Psalm 103, verse 14, has become a favorite verse of mine to reflect on. It says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows what we are made made of. He knows us intimately as our creator. He formed us out of dust. Brothers and sisters, does it bring you comfort knowing that you are known by God? That knowing your weaknesses, he predestined you for adoption, for his glory. It's true that what matters on the day of judgment is not whether or not we know God. Jesus himself said on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Dear friend, do not be satisfied in thinking that you know God or that you have an idea of what he is like. The important question is, does God know you? Have you made him your friend in Christ? Let me just encourage you, if you have never uh, turned from your own way of living and trusted in Christ, given your entire life over to him, Uh, Consider doing that today. Uh, If you have questions about what that might look like, I would love to talk with you more after the service at the door. That's point two. Uh, Point three, Christians cherish the gospel. Christians cherish the gospel. Uh, Paul reminds the Galatians that their attitude towards him and the gospel message uh, when he first came. So look again at verse 13 through 15. Paul says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So we don't know what ailment it was that Paul was referring to. Uh, He gives a little biography of himself in 2 Corinthians, and uh, frankly, it could have been many things. Uh, Paul lived a difficult life. Uh, was greatly persecuted, and so he probably had many physical ailments. Uh, But in any case, they must have taken him in to care for him. And while he was under their care, he preached the gospel to them. And they didn't see his ailment as as a curse or as a burden, but instead as a gift, because it was through that that they heard the beautiful message of the gospel the message they loved so much, they received Paul as if he was an angel or God himself. They recognized the authority by which he preached. Paul says they received him as if he was Christ. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? 
people so eager to receive the good news of Jesus. It makes me wonder if Paul had this reception of him in mind when he wrote Romans 10, verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. After experiencing the blessing of those so eager to hear it. A Christian should revel in the gospel over and over again. Remember afresh how sweet it was when you first realized that you were saved by grace through faith. Not a result of your own work so that no man may boast, but the gift of God. As Ephesians 2 says. Point three, Christians cherish the gospel. Point four, fourth characteristic, disciples or Christians have sacrificial love for other believers. Sacrificial love for other believers. This is seen in the passage both in Paul and in the Galatians. In verses 12 through 13, we see Paul's earnestness in calling them to be like him. Uh, By that, by the way, uh, what he means is to be like him in that he is free from the law. Uh, They are tempted by the Jews to follow the Jewish law, which Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, graduated from when he was converted to Christ. Uh, Paul's whole background was uh, studying and knowing the law and teaching the law, yet he uh, does not submit to the law any longer. So Paul doesn't want them to submit to the law because he recognizes that he was once a slave of the law, which really was not so different from the things they were slave to in their paganism prior to believing in Christ. This kind of sacrificial love by Paul is not easy to do. Uh, In love, he's admonishing them not to make the error of following another gospel, but even more telling than Paul's appeal is the example he gives of their care for him in verse 15. He says that before, they would have plucked their own eyes out and given them to him. Uh, this, uh, that statement or that description has caused some to think that Paul's ailment had something to do with his eyes, like maybe he had some vision problems uh, or something like that. <laughs> we, we still don't really know for sure. Uh, but what we can be certain about is that the Galatian Christians really deeply loved Paul. They were willing to do anything for him. And he wonders why their attitude towards him, uh, or if their attitude towards him, has changed. For us, we can see that sacrificial love for other believers is a good thing, and in so many places in the Bible it is assumed. For example, on the day of Pentecost in Acts, uh, it describes believers as sharing all things, meeting all the needs of believers. Paul famously said in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the greatest gift of the Spirit. He also lists love first in his long list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22. Christians are to be a people that love one another sacrificially. Jesus commanded us to treat others the way we want to be treated and said that it is our love for each other that the world will know us to be one of his disciples. Our love for each other will show the world whose disciples we are. Uh, Is that something that you could say perhaps of your own life? Could another, uh, an outsider, a non-Christian, look at your life and recognize the difference between a disciple of Jesus and you and a non-Christian? So brothers and sisters, in what ways do you show sacrificial love 
for others here in the church. A few practical, uh, maybe, uh, advices for you. Start by looking for ways to serve others. Start by looking for ways to serve others, either formally by volunteering or just through personal relationships. Um, Do you see one of your responsibilities as a member of FBC and as a Christian as serving others? Let's be a church that has a culture of serving one another. And my hope is that as you think through these things, you'll celebrate the ways that you have experienced sacrificial love or the ways that you have uh, seen others shown sacrificial love. Perhaps uh, the ways that uh, you have already been intentional in your own life. Uh, I can easily say that I have been so encouraged uh, from my time coming to this church at the way members treat one another. Uh, we, we aspire truly to treat one another uh, as if a Christ himself were here among us. One commentator made, I think, an insightful observation in this portion. He said that Paul's exhortation for the Galatians to be like him uh, is likely a call for them to suffer like he does for the gospel. He knows they will face opposition and perhaps persecution from these false teachers. But Paul calls on believers to suffer for the sake of the cross. Oh, Christian, are you prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Point five, Christians speak the truth in love. This is similar to point four, uh, but slightly different. Christians speak the truth in love. Now, notice the way that Paul challenges the Galatians in verse 16. I think Paul's the example here. Uh, he means to show them that he does not intend to become an enemy to them. If anyone's attitude has changed in the relationship, it would be the Galatians. So Paul asks them rhetorically, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The answer is, of course not. Uh, And we want this characteristic to benefit us. uh, And if we want it to, in our lives, we have to admit that sometimes uh, we don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes we don't want to believe the truth because we know it means that we have to do the hard thing. Uh, We have to resist fear of man. We have to own up to our struggles. We have to be humble and ask for the help of others. So before we are even able to speak the truth in love to others, we have to be able to speak the truth to ourselves. We begin with a recognition that Whatever is true is good because we worship the God of truth and a God who is good. And this is hard work, uh, but we have to do it if we want to grow and if we ever want to help others grow. We must be a people not only prepared to speak the truth in love, but to receive the truth in humility when others speak the truth in love to us. Just uh, imagine for a few moments what a church would look like Uh, A a church that never speaks the truth out of fear of rejection or perhaps maybe a warped view of love. What happens to a church where honest feedback is not existent? It's hard to see how any kind of real growth would be possible uh, at such a church. It'd be like someone uh, getting into an old building, examining it, ignoring all the structural flaws, eventually that building is going to collapse. Uh, 
But the church of Jesus is made up of many members, Peter says, like bricks in a building. And we as members are to care for each other so as to reinforce the structural integrity of the membership. A church that is willing to speak and receive truth graciously is a church that will be marked by humility and, as a result, holiness. And the point is not to create a a culture of legalism. That's not at all what I'm saying. Uh, It is to love each other so much that we're willing to say uh, hard things. A few comments about this just practically. Uh, When possible, it's important to build a relationship of trust before speaking the truth in love. Build a relationship of trust first. Uh, We should not be quick to correct someone in ordinary situations. Instead, we are to humbly and prayerfully seek to understand others better in order to help them grow. And we should, of course, be willing to have others do the same for us. Uh, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, which means we have to be considered friends if we intend to perform a, a kind of corrective surgery. I can't empathize, emphasize enough how important it is to have a balance of both of those things, both truth and both love. Uh, and it's hard. We usually drift towards one or the other, right? Uh, all truth and no love does not win someone over, typically. It's not encouraging. And all love with no truth only affirms one in their self-deception. Instead, Christians are, have, are to have a, a mixture of both truth and love. And I think Paul's a great example of that here in these verses. He's saying really difficult things, uh, like that he's concerned all of his effort might be in vain. (laughs) Yet he's pleading with them to remember the warmth of their relationship. He addresses them as children. He assures them he is for them and not against them. Christians speak the truth in love to one another. We articulate this well, as we will confess in our church covenant in a little bit. We will exercise a Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as the case shall require. That's what we aspire to do. Point six, Christians prioritize truth over zeal. Christians prioritize truth over zeal. Uh, This one comes from Paul's statements in verses 17 through 18. (laughs) The language is a little different, and I've adjusted it hopefully hopefully for clarity clarity here. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and that make much of uh, is the same word that could be translated as zealous. Uh, So the language is a little confusing, but Paul's basically saying, these Judaizers are not zealous for you for a good reason. They only want you to be zealous for them, for their own glory. They're emphatically seeking their own glory. All the energy they put into their practice is misguided. And, you know, I think that um, it's a fine critique that people make uh, in our theological circles uh, that uh, sometimes we are not so charismatic uh, because, uh, right, we care too much about theology or, or doctrinal agreements, uh, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a fine critique. You know your own heart. 
examine it, if you find that your heart is not engaged with what your head is learning from the Bible, pray and renew your efforts to align those two things. Now, ideally, we are zealous for truth and in truth. But Paul is clear that zeal alone is not bad. Zeal is very good if it's for a good purpose, but zeal without knowledge is incredibly dangerous. Dangerous because it gives the impression that we are being super spiritual in our efforts when in reality we might be serving ourselves. Paul makes this uh, point really clear in his letter to the Romans about unbelieving Jews. Listen to what he says in Romans 10 verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is unbelieving Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Righteousness is found in Christ and not ourselves. So you can be the most zealous law observer there ever was, and you will never establish your own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we must ensure that we prioritize truth and then zealously follow that truth. We should not be zealous first and then assume that because of our zeal alone, our belief is true. Uh, One uh, practical way in which uh, the leaders are try try to be intentional, at least for our church specifically, uh, is our particular style of singing. Uh, right? I know uh, different styles that exist out there in the world. And if we wanted to generate uh, the kind of emotional feelings and enthusiasm uh, as concerts, then we would make it look like that. We would have dark rooms, larger bands, assuming we have the resources, uh, and uh, beautiful music. Uh, Some churches go so far as to even hire non-Christian musicians uh, to make the music uh, so beautiful to the ears. I'm not saying that churches that fit these descriptions don't care about truth. Uh, Don't hear me saying that. But I'm not surprised when theological precision in those types of churches takes a back seat. I submit to you that the purpose of singing among the saints of God is not the music itself, but the words that we proclaim to God and to each other while we're singing. And the truths that we proclaim should inform our hearts about what to be zealous about. Look through your bulletin sometime and just meditate on the lyrics of these songs. This is why we incorporate songs, some from the 1800s like today, some from the 2010s. Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon. Clouds behind and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. That's a song that you can sing on your deathbed, Christian. Seventh characteristic of Christians. 
a deep concern for spiritual growth. A deep concern for spiritual growth. Uh, This last point comes from the image Paul uses in verse 19. He says that he is in anguish, like a laboring mother waiting for Christ to show up in their lives. He cares so deeply about their growth that he likens it to child labor. Uh, Labor is always like the trump card in the arguments about (laughs) uh, pain in life, right? Nothing is worse than labor. Men don't understand this because they will never know. They can't experience it. Men have a low tolerance for pain. This is at least uh, what my wife says. And I believe her. It's probably true. It's probably true. And Paul here, he's not saying that he doesn't think they're Christian. Uh, That's not what he means when he's saying he's waiting for for Christ to uh, show up in their lives. But he's extremely anxious about how they will respond to the Judaizers. He so earnestly desires for them to remember the grace of the gospel and the freedom in Christ. The thought of them turning to a works-based righteousness system causes him great pain. He's concerned that the Galatians will be like the seed sown on rocky ground that springs up quickly but has no root and therefore is scorched when the sun comes out. Uh, Paul has a deep concern over their spiritual growth. And this issue with the Judaizers appears to be a a crucial moment in their discipleship. Will they hold to what is good, the message that Paul preached, or will they be influenced by the prestige of the Jewish teachers and their traditions? If you read through any one of Paul's letters, you'll notice a deep concern he has for the spiritual growth of those that he's writing to. Uh, There's an excellent book called Praying with Paul by Don Carson, in which he notes, he looks at all of Paul's prayers in all of his letters when he says, you know, I'm praying for you, uh, and listing out what his prayers are. Don Carson notes in that book that uh, many of Paul's prayers, they're geared towards spiritual growth rather than a change in circumstance or or, or healing for uh, some kind of affliction. Brothers and sisters, we too should be characterized by a deep concern for spiritual growth both in ourselves and in each other. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's Ephesians 6.12. How do we as Christians expect to wrestle such powers apart from spiritual maturity? A question for us to consider is, what does it look like for a community to show deep concern for spiritual growth in itself? Here are a few suggestions. By the way, all of these lists that I'm giving you, these seven points and uh, examples like this, they're of course not exhaustive. Much more time could be spent probably thinking of other ideas. Discuss over lunch if you think of more to add to them. But a few suggestions. Make it a practice to ask intentional and spiritually diagnostic questions in your conversations with others. Make it a practice to ask intentional and spiritually diagnostic questions. Uh, Look for opportunities to encourage others in their walk with the Lord. Uh, Set out intentionally before you meet with someone, uh, thinking things like, how can I encourage this brother? How can I encourage this sister? Uh, And pray that the Lord would do that. Lord, help me to be an encouragement to them. 
pray regularly through the church directory and pray for spiritual growth specifically. Uh, I have learned in my own life <laughs> that this is a discipline, something I needed to, to learn to do because I gravitate towards, you know, uh, all of the practical things, right? Uh, help this person uh, get a job. They've been looking for a job for a while. Help this person find a spouse. They desire marriage, and that's a good gift. Uh, and I've noticed that I've had to train myself uh, to pray intentionally for spiritual growth, uh, to grow in contentment and joy in the Lord, to grow in trust in God's goodness through difficulty and trials. So pray through the church directory and pray for spiritual growth specifically. Uh, ask someone if they would be willing to disciple you in a particular area of your walk with Christ. Uh, if you, when examining yourself, say, I would really like to grow this way in 2024, uh, consider finding someone in the church that you think uh, is especially strong at that thing and ask humbly if they would consider you or meet with you uh, for a few months. It doesn't have to be an indefinite thing. As I mentioned at the beginning, the, the main point of this passage is that we should diligently guard the gospel so that we remain free from the slavery of a works-based salvation. I think if we do that, remember the gospel of grace, guard ourselves from the slavery of works-based righteousness, these characteristics are going to be evident in our life. Conversely, these seven characteristics will be threatened if we are not careful to guard the gospel. Paul's tone conveys the importance of such matters in the lives of the Galatian Christians. And I submit to you that it is every bit as important for us today to heed these same warnings. In his wisdom, Jesus gave his followers a means of remembering the gospel of grace so that we would not slip into believing in a, in a works-based righteousness system. Now, that means of remembering the gospel, remembering God's grace to us, uh, is communion that we're about to partake of together this morning. So as you meditate on the supper, reflect on the sacrifice of Christ's own blood and body so that we could freely dine with him in the world to come. Let's pray.